Hello, and welcome to Kitchen Sink Conversations. I'm Klein Kitchen. David Sanger is a White House and national security correspondent at the New York Times and a senior writer. In a 38-year reporting career for the New York Times, he has been on three teams that have won Pulitzer Prizes, most recently in 2017 for international reporting. His latest book, The Perfect Weapon, War, Sabotage, and Fear in the Cyber Age, and an HBO documentary by the same title, examine the emergence of cyber conflict and its role in changing the nature of global power. He's also a wonderful conversationalist, and it was a pleasure chatting with him on the podcast. I hope you enjoy it. David, thank you for joining us here. Great to be with you, Klein. David, you and I have known each other for a couple of years. I am a huge fan uh, of your journalism uh, and of your work. Um, You are an accomplished author. Uh, You have been bouncing around D.C. trying to keep this place straight for years and years. And uh, it's really a pleasure to be able to have a conversation with you about all the stuff that's going on in today's world. Well, great to be with you. And um, uh, you and I met over um, cyber issues, but we've got lots of interest beyond those as well. So uh, look forward to the conversation. Great. Well, I like to begin every conversation with our guests with giving them a chance to lay out a little bit about their background and how they have ended up where they are. So just tell us a little bit about how you ended up doing the work that you do and, and, and what, you, um, what experiences kind of brought you to this point. Uh, sure. Uh, this is, believe it or not, um, the beginning of my 40th year at the New York Times. So um, uh, it's uh, the only news organization uh, I've ever worked for, you know, full time. Uh, or as I like to say, as a result, I've, I've never worked for a real newspaper, right? <laughs> because what the Times does is, um, I think, so extraordinary compared to, uh, you know, what most news organizations do. It's really like a big university and, you know, you have the advantage that you get to work with specialists from so many different departments. Um, I um, uh, knew, I guess, or at least my friends knew I was going to be a journalist from my time in junior high school and high school working on school papers. Uh, and then, uh, went to Harvard, um, which does not have a journalism school, but has what I think most people in journalism would tell you is the greatest journalism school in the country, which is the Harvard Crimson daily newspaper. Um, the daily, not only for the university, but, uh, for Cambridge. Um, and if you look across American journalism today, both broadcast media and, uh, print, and now of course the merger of the two, um, you find an astounding number of former Crimson reporters and, and editors. What Um, made, what made the Crimson so formative? You know, um, It's a real newspaper. Uh, It comes out each and every day. It has the pressures, the politics, the um, news gathering dynamic, the interest in a great story, the very bright people that um, uh, you find in a full-scale newspaper. And it's got a great history. I mean, you walk in the door and there's a picture of young Franklin Roosevelt as the uh, president, the top editor of the Crimson, sitting at his desk, a desk I think that may still be around, um, you know, by hand editing a story. And, you know, it goes on from there. (laughs) So so it's a pretty remarkable uh, place. Um, I thought I wanted to go to law school, uh, applied, got in a couple places, deferred, and went off to the Times to be a news clerk back in the days when we actually still ran pieces of paper around the newsroom. And um, you would write on the side, and I became a reporter. Um, And out of interest that I had developed during summer jobs, started writing a lot about the technology uh, world. This was just when IBM had gotten into the personal computer uh, business, um, a business they later sold off. Uh, when Apple was first coming out with the Mac, um, I actually um, spent 
the better part of a week with Steve Jobs running around New York in the week that he was bringing the Mac out for the first time. Uh, I covered the uh, the Microsoft going public. Um, you know, back in those days, and even today, if you cover something, you cannot invest in it. Can you imagine had I been investing in Microsoft uh, <laughs> instead of uh, just writing about it? <laughs> um, and uh, then uh, through worked on writing about technology through the uh, um, mid-1980s. And um, in January of 1986, the Space Shuttle Challenger uh, exploded. And um, I was put on the team that afternoon to figure out what happened because we thought for a while, wrongly, that it had been a, a computer error in these old memory core computers that used floating pieces of iron to run the memory uh, that uh, were still used in the space shuttle in those days. Um, we quickly ruled that out, but a group of us um, actually managed to um, uh, find the engineers who had warned them not to launch because of the cold weather. And uh, that led to a year of investigation, uh, broke all those stories, won the Pulitzer in the following year for that. And I was, I guess, 26 or 27 and there's usually a few months at the New York Times after you've won a Pulitzer um, where you can ask for something before they forget that you won the Pulitzer. Uh, so I jumped the queue to be a foreign correspondent and um, went to Japan at a time that we were talking about Japan the way we talk about China today as mm -hmm. the country that would crush America technologically. And I spent six fabulous years in Japan. Uh, my wife and I were newly married then, and we were running around Asia. The not Times did not have anywhere near the number of people in Asia that we do today. So, you know, I was into China right after, soon after the Tiananmen uh, massacre. I was all through uh, Southeast Asia, Australia, and really got a, a love at that time of, um, the, the Asia story, both the technological story and the political story. I also wrote the first pieces that had really been in major American news organizations about this strange project in North Korea that looked like it might be intended to build a nuclear bomb, mm -hmm. uh, a subject I'm still writing about 35 years later. Um, after uh, six years of that, I came back to Washington uh, for what I was promised would be a three-year assignment. Uh, I have clearly screwed up because it's stretched to 27 now um, and uh, ended up covering uh, international economics uh, and then going on to cover the White House uh, during the end of the Clinton administration through um, the uh, Bush administration. I was with Bush on 9-11 in Florida uh, I covered the entry into uh, the Afghan war. I covered the entry into the Iraq war, that decision-making. Um, worked on a very big project that uh, I was on how A.Q. Khan, the uh, Pakistani um, scientist who just died a few months ago, um, ended up providing nuclear weapons technology to Iran, Libya, and North Korea, a 14-month-long New York Times investigation that ultimately prompted the Pakistanis to arrest him, grudgingly, since he was doing this with at least the knowledge, if not the acquiescence, of the government. They were, after all, lending him their Air Force planes to deliver his goods. Um, right? <laughs> um, and uh, then went off to be chief Washington correspondent for the times and then to do national security projects, uh, worked on a couple of other Pulitzer winning teams, uh, after that, including the one that did the investigation into, uh, Russia's interference in the, uh, 2016 election. And, um, now at the beginning of the Biden administration, just a year ago, uh, was asked to actually go back and do the job I had done, um, uh, years ago, uh, and cover the White House, but in the interim, I had developed a real interest in in cyber, and I'm sure we'll we'll take that up in the future. So, uh, what's the appeal 
of going back to the White House as the White House and national security correspondent? Um, one of the really interesting things about covering the White House is it's where all of the competing influences come together. It's where the president has to decide between domestic imperatives and foreign imperatives. It's where he has to decide where he's spending his money. Um, you know, as President Obama was deciding early in his time in 2009 whether to do the surge in Afghanistan, uh, a moment you probably remember well, there's a scene which I recorded in one of my books, uh, Confront and Conceal, which described Obama's first term, um, where uh, General McChrystal had sent along a um, proposal to do a surge upwards of 100,000 troops, but there was also a 40,000 level and a 10 or 20,000 level. And um, at one moment in some of the photographs of the meetings in the uh, situation room, we noticed that the head of OMB at the time, Peter Orzog, was sitting in the meetings. We're thinking to ourselves and a group of reporters, so why is Peter there? And it suddenly struck us that Obama had asked him what this would cost. And as I recount in the story, Obama had called Peter in to the Oval Office and gotten the summary. And the answer he got was, um, sir, this would cost uh, about $100 billion a year or a trillion dollars over 10 years. This was 2009. And if that number sounds familiar, it's about what it would cost to insure every uninsured American with health insurance uh, over that same 10 years. And, you know, the way he phrased that kind of answered the question of how Obama was going to go do this. And years later, McChrystal and I were giving a talk together um, at Texas A&M, and we had some time to chat before we went on stage. And I remember him saying to me, you know, David, until I read that in the book, I didn't even know, as a, he was, you know, beaming in from Afghanistan, that this was the competing uh, way to go spend the money. And of course, there were other implications of you know, other things that Obama was considering wasn't the only one. But I thought, boy, was that the classic example where the commander in Afghanistan, he's just thinking about taking care of his troops in Afghanistan and a strategy that might get him out of this in one piece, right? And the people who are lobbying for healthcare for all Americans aren't thinking about Afghanistan. They're thinking about how do you insure all of America's at that time, 30 or 40 million uninsured families. And here's where the two met. And that's what makes white house reporting so fascinating. Well, and interestingly, it would seem that the Biden administration is actually trying to blend those two and, and, you know, they, they speak of, of developing a foreign policy that serves blue collar America, you know, and, Certainly conversations. Good. No, I was going to say that's been a big theme for both President Biden and Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor. Go right ahead. Yeah, that's ex exactly right. And so um, I think this this uh, point of, of the White House being the, the center of gravity for all these um, intermingling interests is obvious uh, and, and obviously true. And yeah, it's why it is... Uh, you know, foreign policy and domestic policy, those those distinctions aren't nearly as clear as we used to think they were, at least. And um, certainly in our conversations, we think about things like Russia and China. I'm sure that'll be the case. But before you know, we and get let me just say a quick point on this with Biden. Please. He's got an additional challenge, which is he recognizes that democracy is a great import for countries, but a crummy export. And if you're going to try to export it, you've got to make it clear that, as he puts it, in the battle between autocracy and democracy, that um, democracy can get things done. And in the past year, you know, I'm reminded of this with uh, last week's um, January 6th uh, commemorations, we have never been more divided. And we've never had a moment where it's been easier for the Russians or the Chinese in their own disinformation and misinformation campaigns to make the case, 
hey, you got you want the much vaunted American democracy? Well, this is what it looks like. Let's roll the tape from January 6th. And, you know, I know people don't think about this as much when they run that. They're you know, their reaction to January 6th is whatever their reaction is. But the fact of the matter is, I don't think there has been an event inside the United States that has had a bigger impact on our influence and power abroad than that one. Yeah, I, um, <clears throat> I'm, I'm kind of limiting my, my kind of public commentary on January 6th, just because it's, it's always helpful for me to kind of stick to my lanes generally, that being said, one of the things I have said, and I believe to my core, is, you know, when I used to deploy and operate overseas, of course, you get in conversations with your your foreign partners and friends, and inevitably, comparisons and contrasts happen. And I remember uh, routinely uh, pointing to the fact that regardless of our political divisions, we transferred power peaceably, and that that just, sh- frankly, it shut down uh, kind of false moral equivalencies and, and all kinds of kind of silly critiques and complaints. And we've lost that. And we, we took a hit there. And that is that is meaningful. That is not a small thing. And then to your broader point, you know, we've, as a culture, we've been talking about, you know, Russian disinformation now for years, rightly so. Um, but what a lot of people, you know, as someone who used to uh, – run influence campaigns uh, for the government. Um, I'll tell you, you know, what, what 2016 and, and, and even a lot of, of Russian effort prior to 2016 was about was not fundamentally changing a particular outcome in a particular election, but undermining broader confidence in democratic institutions. And <clears throat> unfortunately, there are a host of people here domestically who have just put their foot on the gas of that. And we've done more damage to American um, confidence in democratic institutions than the Russians could have ever hoped. That, that's absolutely right. And, you know, it's interesting to see, again, no matter what you thought of January 6th, whether you thought it was an insurrection, a riot, or something staged by the FBI and Democrats, as I the crazy conspiracy theories I sometimes hear uh, kicked around. Whatever you think of it, it's interesting to see how the Russians and the Chinese have played it. So the Russians brought used it to do what they did in 2016, to further the divisions, right? To pump stuff into our system that would widen the gap. And um, it didn't take much, as you say, because here we are debating, will anybody accept the 2024 election results? Or is President Trump trying to set them up as fixed unless he or a candidate he supports wins? The Chinese did something different. They broadcast it internally, not to widen our divisions, but to say to their own people, you love the whole idea of democracy. Well, we have Chinese democracy. It looks different. Now, you and I would disagree about the use of, you know, would disagree with the Chinese about the use of the term. But they're using it to make their domestic point that the Americans aren't quite what they're cracked up to be, or even what they say they are. Yeah, I one of the things I'll often say is that I, I think China believe. I think the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, believes that it is um, pioneering a new model of governance that that marries up the wealth uh, and, and influence of their form of managed capitalism with the strength and stability of their totalitarianism, and that they see technology as, as the kind of key variable in realizing both of those aims. So I think, I think they're right. I think they're genuinely trying to put out an alternative model and um, and kind of kick that around. Uh, okay, so before we kind of get into even further detail on some of those issues, um, I can't have you here and not, frankly, just take advantage of the moment by asking you about your process. So you operate at the the height of of your field. I think that's very clear. And how do you know a good story? And then when you become convinced, okay, there's something here, just tell us a little bit about what goes on in your head and and how you go about kind of chasing that down? Well, part of it is recognizing that um, 
how the foreign policy decisions and national security decisions of the United States are made in an atmosphere where there are so many players. Um, obviously, a new administration that's got a worldview, members of Congress who have votes and influence, foreign nations, allies, and so forth, that um, there's going to be division on the right way to go about and what your strategic options are. And uh, I've spent a lifetime basically trying to study how those decisions get made. And it's the core of a course that Graham Allison and I have taught now for more than a dozen years at the Harvard Kennedy School, um, which is called um, Central Challenges in American National Security Strategy in the Press. And every day that I go to work as a New York Times reporter, it's to try to figure out how we are coping with those challenges. So let me give you an example that just goes back to this past weekend. Okay. We've had the administration running around saying, if the Russians invade Ukraine, there will be sanctions on a scale that have never been imposed before. We are willing to do things we did not do in 2014, which doesn't finish that sentence by saying that the sanctions in 2014 during the Obama administration were a failure. They, were in, they had a one strategic objective to force the Russians to leave Crimea, which they had just annexed. And nearly eight years later, the Russians are still in Crimea. So we know what didn't work. And we know that we have sanctioned Russia after the 2016 elections. And we know we have sanctioned Russia after the solar winds cyber attacks. And we know that none of that has appeared to change Vladimir Putin's calculus. So the news story was, so what are you going to go do that is different from before? And you asked about process. Well, the administration, not surprisingly, doesn't want to say very much about what they would go do. And we want very much to go explain it, assess it, measure the likelihood that it will work. So how do you report a story like that? Well, sanctions only work when you get all of your allies to go agree to them. So we knew right away this is not something that Washington could put together in a vacuum and then, you know, just try to drop on the world. So as they went out to go brief allies, we went out right behind them to go debrief allies, <laughs> okay? And uh, it didn't take very long if you've got a staff as talented and as well-connected as the New York Times staff around the world. And this is what separates the Times from every other news organization you know of. We have an enormous foreign staff. They are uh, uh, displayed all around the world. And they are deeply connected. And if you use that network right, you can gather the data. Then you go back to the White House and you say, we are preparing to write a story that describes the sanctions. And the White House then has to make a decision. Do they let you do that without their input or with it? Uh, in that case, they decided to come out and sort of explain their thinking. And the result was a very big Sunday piece you probably saw the other day that described the financial sanctions, the technology sanctions, and the threat to go arm an insurgency inside Ukraine if the Russians end up occupying the country. So that's a great bridge then to the discussion of, um, of Russia and, and Ukraine. Uh, you're obviously neck deep in, in reporting on that. What, um, what are you anticipating over the next couple of weeks? Well, one of the big issues out here is um, what Putin's calculus is. He's massed 100,000 troops, but as we reported uh, just today um, in uh, the Times, um, they've not added to those troops dramatically. They've added some air power, helicopters and so forth, 
but we expected that there would be closer to 175,000 troops now. He can't really roll his heavy armor across that border uh, unless the ground freezes and it hasn't fully frozen yet. So there's going to be a window, probably starting in a week or two, maybe three, when that ground is frozen enough and that you know, he's got to, if he's going to do an invasion, he's got to do it between then and Ukrainian mud season. Uh, and so that doesn't leave him much of a window. He has options short of a full invasion. And frankly, you know, we'll, we'll come back and do another broadcast when I'm completely proven wrong here. I don't think his intent here is to occupy the entire country. I think he knows, you know, Having been through the Afghan experience, he knows what that would look like. I could imagine him taking some more land in the east, um, getting that land bridge to Crimea, but basically occupying the Russian-speaking eastern part of the country. I could imagine him doing a very effective cyber campaign uh, in uh, The Perfect Weapon, my book on cyber. You and I have talked about before, I describe at length how the Russians turned off the power in Ukraine in two separate incidents in 2015 and 2016. They could do that again. What do I think he wants? I think he wants a puppet government in Ukraine. He wants to stop its Western orientation. And if he can destabilize the government without triggering those Western sanctions we were just talking about, then I think he will have achieved a good deal, maybe not all of the strategic objectives. He also has a broader agenda, which they've been made no secret about, which is to roll back the clock. And I wrote about this in today's times to pre-1997 when uh, President Yeltsin uh, signed an agreement with the Clinton administration that basically set the pathway for the expansion of NATO to include many former Soviet states. And um, I think as a matter of legacy, he wants to push back on that. Uh, I think uh, just on your point about uh, if he were to make another incursion into Ukraine, I think your point about stopping short, so, so short of a full-scale invasion, I think that's how I've been thinking about this as well, just because of <clears throat> yeah, what that triggers, the, 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 the difficulties of actually managing anything beyond that, but the, the possibility of being able to secure some of the objectives that you've laid out here without triggering at least all of the potential American responses. I and also the chance agree- to divide the Europeans, right? right? Some will say this is worth right. full sanctions and others will say this isn't worth right. so angering him that it cuts off our, our gas supplies in the middle of the winter. That's right. Yeah. If you don't have a capital falling, right, then then it, that gives, I think, people space for um, uh, maneuver is the wrong word. But um, but I also I also think, uh, as you've laid out, I, I'm very confident that that cyber will feature feature very prominently in any action. Um, you know, th- look, Russia has been in Ukrainian networks at least eight years. They've had plenty of time to um, lay the groundwork for future action. Uh, I'm confident they have done that. As you mentioned, yeah, on, on at least two occasions, they they shut off the power to you know a couple hundred thousand Ukrainians for a couple hours at a time. They, you know, th- there were stories running all over about how Russia was using Ukraine as a little bit of a of a cyber sandbox, testing out new capabilities and that kind of thing. So, I do feel very confident that um, that cyber will you know create a pretext. Uh, a propaganda pretext for, for making an action, and then it will be a huge enabling capability for any military maneuver that occurs. Which takes us back to a topic you and I have talked about before, uh, Khan, which is was one of the main reasons that I wrote The Perfect Weapon. And for those um, who haven't seen it, the HBO documentary, which came out last year, based the same title, um, based on it, which which will take you through that history in Ukraine. Uh, as well. Um, And that is that there is no major military plan among any of the significant military forces in the world today that doesn't have cyber built into it and frequently 
is mostly cyber in the opening hours. And uh, I'm not sure the degree to which that is fully appreciated around the world, because we have, you know, for all the talk of cyber war, we haven't seen a real cyber war. We have seen limited cyber conflict. Um, you know, it reminds me in many ways of the early days of air power. You know, in World War One, yeah, we had some dogfights, but I don't think any of us would say that it changed the course of the war or even changed the timing of when World War One ended. But by World War Two, air power was the decisive strategic weapon and the vehicle for dropping the atomic bomb. And for cyber, we're kind of at the end of World War One. You know, we've had some interesting skirmishes. We've all written on the topic. <laughs> um, we've examined the different ways cyber can be used for stealing data, for data manipulation, for sabotage, such as uh, Olympic Games, the operation against uh, the Iranian uh, nuclear uh, program. Um for data manipulation of disinformation, the way we were discussing it before. But we haven't really seen it used as an integrated part of a significant military action. And that day is coming. And I fear if, unless Ukraine is diffused, you're going to see it in a big way there. Yeah, I, I completely agree and have written about that here recently, saying explicitly that, that we're going to see cyber as a as an enabling capability and, and, a, and a line of action of its own that I think probably whose who scale and, and severity perhaps outstrips what we've seen previously. I think that's right. Um, are, have you had any interesting conversations with uh, defense or intelligence uh, folks associated with cyber on what they're anticipating in Russia or uh, in the Ukraine with Russia? I have had interesting conversations about what capabilities they think the Russians have there. Um, but what we don't know is intent, yeah. right? And how well they can, they can hide it. The fact of the matter is that much of the Russian electric grid was built in Soviet times and tied back to the grid in Russia itself. So, there are both physical links and there are design links. And so in many cases for the Ukrainians, this is the worst case defense scenario because the Russians know where every wire is, where every connection was put together. And that's why it was so easy for them to do what they did in 2015 and 2016. Well, and you know, there's also the 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 challenge of unintended consequences. So, you know, in in terms of the the Russian-backed um, deployment of uh, the NotPetya uh, attack in Ukraine that ultimately went well beyond the Ukrainian borders and even back into Russia in some examples, and it cost billions of dollars in damages across the globe. And so it's it's not um, uh, I'll say it's not unlikely that you know. If things were to cook off in Ukraine, as we're discussing, and if the Russians were to do what I think you and I would anticipate in terms of a large-scale um, cyber uh, kind of support capability or support action, um, look, the reverberations of that activity could easily, you know, go well beyond Ukraine. And this is the oh, kind yeah. of stuff that that you know, that this is the kind of friction that brings you know real consequence uh, in the course of uh, international events. Mm hmm. Um, that is um, uh, exactly right. Uh, one of the things we've learned about cyber weapons is they are hard to contain. Um, after Olympic Games happened, the Stuxnet worm made its way around and uh, elements of that strategy and that code have shown up in many attacks shot back at us. The NotPetya attacks, and uh, before that, another series of attacks that were exploited by the North Koreans and that ultimately hit the British healthcare system. The um, Heartbleed? Uh, no, I'm, I'm blanking right now on the name, and of course, it was once at the tip of our tongue. Um, That's fine. Ended Keep up, going. 
ended up being, um, it turned out, drawn from some vulnerabilities and cyber weapons uh, that had leaked from the NSA's uh, uh, the uh, shadow operations, yeah. from the shadow brokers thing, right? And um, so we've learned even in our own cases that if you can't hold on to all the elements of the vulnerabilities you collect, the zero days that you put together, uh, the weapons you design, they can end up being fired back at your allies just as you leave, um, you know, unexploded ordnance on the beach, it can be used by your enemy against you. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, interestingly, so uh, I, I, I suspect that um, around the same time that this podcast go out, um, uh, I'll be having a, a, an editorial in um, over at Lawfare, which I'll I'll try to link to. Um, discussing um, the need for unprecedented cooperation between the United States and Taiwan uh, in the anticipation of potential Chinese action against uh, against Taiwan, much in the way that we're discussing Russia and Ukraine, where I specifically say, um, look, much like you were describing the Russians understanding the, the details of, of Ukrainian networks, it is absolutely the case that the Chinese uh, understand the details of, of Taiwanese um, networks and infrastructure, and they, in fact, you know, it's it's you know, for example, uh, it's a it's a Chinese manufacturer who makes the majority of the large cranes that load and unload um, container boxes in in all of Taiwan's ports, and of course, all the software that runs them is is Chinese and everything else. And so, uh, just you know, I'm trying to draw the point that. We need to be doing unprecedented levels of cooperation with Taiwan right now in terms of doing threat hunting on their networks, in terms of uh, helping to think very carefully and in detail about what it looks like to secure um, the Taiwan Semiconductor Company or TSMC. Um, yeah, I mean, like the, the, the things that you and I are discussing right now in regards to Russia, these are going to be the characteristics that define military conflict going forward. And and may actually preempt it. I mean, one of the scenarios that American officials worry about the most with Taiwan is simply that the Chinese could cut the cables yep. that most um, uh, internet traffic runs over. You know, the ultimate hack is to hack through the cable, right? And there are not that many of them. And the Taiwan Strait isn't that deep for where some of these run. Um, exactly. So that would be one way into it. But this runs both ways. You know, you talk about unintended consequences before. You know, up on that hill outside of Taipei, where Taiwan Semiconductor has the facility that you were describing, you know, one side of the house builds 5G chips for the Chinese that they have not been able to design themselves. The other half of the house builds them for us. And uh, my own view is that Taiwan Semiconductor is probably the single greatest piece of defense that the Taiwanese government has right now because the Chinese government cannot afford to see Taiwan Semiconductor destroyed. It's also why you see the Biden administration, and before it, you have to give them credit, uh, the Trump administration, trying to get Taiwan Semiconductor with some success to build facilities here in the United States so that we are not completely dependent on that one big building in Taiwan. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And there's, <clears throat> there's, there's been public discussion of kind of what, what some people refer to as the, um, the, the, the arsonist plan. It's the idea of, you know, some people associated with TSMC engineers and, and others, have publicly said that you know the the moment uh, a Chinese military steps foot on uh, Taiwan, we'll burn it all down before we let them get it. You know now, obviously, uh, who knows how all this you know potentially plays out, um, but I think it does illustrate <clears throat> the level of of importance and severity of the issues that we're talking about. Um, which to pull back uh, out just a little bit, you mentioned previously that you were in Japan at a time when the United States was talking about uh, Japan in much the same way that, that Americans and American policymakers are talking about China. Um, does that make you skeptical 
of the conversation currently about China, or does it? How does that inform your thinking about uh, the clear, growing concern and growing in policy engagement on China? You know, I was trained in part by the great historian Ernie May, uh, who um, passed away oh, more than a decade ago, um, but wrote a terrific book about the uses and the dangers of historical analogy as we make our, our decisions. And what the first thing he would teach you to go do was take a big piece of paper and put a line right down the middle and talk about what are the similarities and what are the differences. So the similarity with the Japan issue was we considered them to be a huge economic competitor who, in our view, was technologically in the lead. That turned out to be wrong. We missed a few things, the development of mobile computing, Windows computing, you know, uh, the the iPhone, uh, and so forth. Uh, but they were a huge uh, competitor on the economic and the technological front. But the, on the differences side of the, of that sheet of paper is that they were a military ally. And what makes the China element of this different is that we consider them also our most potent military adversary or potential adversary. And that changes the nature of this uh, competition. The second thing you have to remember is it's really easy to go straight line uh, China's economic development and assume that will continue for the next 20 years. Because for the last 20, we were waiting for the Chinese to hit the rocks and kind of like an expert kayaker, they managed to go skip around every major obstacle in the river. But there are many who believe including in your shop at AEI, it's a point that Corey Shockey makes very often, our mutual friend, that we may have hit peak China. That the nature of the challenge of keeping that many people employed, of a restive, unmarried male, young population that they keep trying to find jobs for on the coast and so forth, um, that the levels of productivity that they saw when they were growing power are all unsustainable. And that's what turned out to be happening in Japan. As I left Japan in 1994, the economy was just beginning to crack. And very few people had considered that a possibility. Yeah, I think there's a lot to um, ab about that argument that that's compelling. Um, I think also so things that Corey and and you know Hal Brands, another AI scholar who who um, kind of puts forward this view that 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 actually Chinese decline has begun. One thing that they'll often say though is that, but that actually makes them more dangerous in the near term, not less. You know, it's it's and, very funny. I remember early when I went down in um, uh, to uh, Crawford, Texas in the week before George W. Bush was um, inaugurated. And this would have been in uh, 2000, January of 2001. It was actually basically this week, 20 years ago. And I have a picture I'm looking at here on the side of, of him and me hiking on the, down to a waterfall on his, his property. I asked him, what's more dangerous, a rising China or a China that sort of hits the rocks. And he looked at me and scrunched up his face in that wonderful way that Bush could and said, Sanger, is that a trick question? And I guess the answer 20 years later is, yeah, it's a trick question for all of us hmm. because we simply don't know. We've never seen China behave at a moment that it could not sustain and buy off its people with the promise of constant growth. Yeah. I mean, these are issues of, of high consequence. I don't quite know how to interpret some of the actions that Xi Jinping is taking against its tech sector. I think initially when he started making actions against uh, Jack Ma and Alibaba and A&T Financial, I initially read that as being um, 
you know, just a, kind of a political correction. Like, okay, these guys, Jack and, and, and these tech titans have gotten too big for their pants. They need to be reminded of their place in the world. Uh, and so they were taking those kind of actions. However, uh, she continues to take actions that in any kind of rational economic sense and, and even social and, and political sense would seem counterproductive. And yet he seems to be doubling down. And so I do, I do wonder if, if he's actually, no, he's a true believer and he thinks that the time to pivot away from his form of managed capitalism to a more explicit socialism has come and he's going to stick with it. Uh, at which point I think that that actually redounds to the U.S. benefit long term, uh, but but doesn't solve the the kind of near term challenge of a of a declining and therefore dangerous China. Yeah, I think you know, dangerous either way, mm-hmm. uh, but very different strategies to go manage them. And uh, you know, if you were developing what those strategic options look like, you know, you need a plan A for a rising China, and you need a plan B for a uh, one that that is feeling as if um, it can't sustain the kind of growth levels it's at, because that raises a level of internal threat to Xi that he has not felt so far. Well, and 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 further complicating the job of of decision makers in in DC and around the world is, you know, it there's there's one strategy both in terms of political strategy, but then also kind of investment, military investment strategy, if you're trying to prepare for a, cha- a, a challenge with China in the next you know, 10 to 15 years. And it's an entirely different strategy if you're planning for something in the 20 to 30 year time frame. Um, and I think, I think in the 20 to 30 year time frame, uh, the, the role of um, Commercial technologies or technologies that are being overwhelmingly developed in the commercial sector, things like you know artificial intelligence and quantum and robotics and things like that, those I think feature much more prominently in that twenty to thirty year time frame. Uh, which then, to kind of bring this all full circle, uh, brings us to that super important question about how governments interact with their private technology sectors and how the um, the national security burden is now increasingly shared between public and private. And um, and that's introducing new dynamics that I think you're seeing work themselves out, epitomized by the U.S. model and the Chinese model. Absolutely, absolutely. And you know what's interesting is we're develop we're we're grabbing some pieces of the Chinese model. You know, if you look at the bill that has passed uh, in the Senate but not yet been taken up in the House for six months, a mystery to me, the China bill. Um. There's $50 billion in it, in federal funds to support the American semiconductor industry. Yep. Um, 20 years ago, we would have been screaming that that was industrial policy. It's actually the only bill that passed the Senate with a significant bipartisan majority, a big bipartisan majority. Of all of the things we've been arguing about over the past year, reviving industrial policy for the United States to compete with China has not been one of them. And well, perhaps we have the Chinese to thank for finding the one issue on which we could get Democrats and Republicans in the same place. Well, I mean, think back to the previous administration. I mean, the one place where there's any semblance of bipartisan uh, policy development uh, during the Trump administration was on China. Chuck, Shuk, uh, Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi often agreed with the president uh, in terms of uh, the policies that were being put forward when it came to China. And, you know, I remember, you know, I, I did a, a short stint, a very short stint uh, on the Hill. But during that time, I remember, you know, national security and military leaders coming in and they were very clearly articulating to policymakers that the American military advantage was eroding and that the speed of that erosion was picking up uh, relative to China. And I do think that that policymakers got that message. And what we're observing now uh, are, you know, a very traditional American response to that, uh, where it's like, okay, well, let's throw all the money at it and we'll figure it out. That's absolutely right. Yeah. Um, David, you've been very generous with your time. Thank you so much. It's always a pleasure to talk with you, and it's always very informative. Congratulations on your return to the White House as the White House and <laughs> National Security Correspondent. I'm sure you are going to be very busy and have plenty of stories to run down. Well, it's been a, it's been a busy it's been a busy year, and you know one of the delights of it, uh, Claude, is um, you come to this at um, 
age 61 as I have, and I've got these fabulous um, uh, White House correspondent colleagues, some of whom I confess were born after I joined the New York Times. And I have learned more from them about political coverage and covering the White House in the past year than I could have possibly imagined. So, you know, it's a, it's a reminder that um, sometimes it's good to go back to a job you had long ago only to discover that it isn't the job you remember. Hmm. Hmm. And, you know, yesterday, as the negotiations were underway in Geneva, we were feeding what's called the live coverage on the homepage of the New York Times, updating people by the minute, basically what wire services used to do back in the days when I was getting uh, into journalism. And it's wildly different. It's got advantages and disadvantages from, you know, uh, what we recall. Um, but it reminds you that uh, the business of journalism and basically merging, analyzing ideas on the fly is a radically different one now than when I entered the Times. And um, in some ways, it's better now. Yeah, it is a fascinating um, intermingling of techno modern technology and, and modern foreign policy, this idea that you're live streaming or live tweeting uh, negotiations between the United States and Russia in Geneva about you know the potential invasion of Ukraine and the future of NATO. That is amazing. And it's got a feedback loop. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, Ribikov, the deputy Russian foreign minister, was talking at his news conference about some of our coverage that he had just read, written by my colleague, Peter Baker. And, um, you know, so one of the fascinating things about the modern era of news is that the instantaneous coverage, which, as I said, has its downsides, right, and has the opportunity to make error along the way and, and so forth, is a giant feedback loop and mm -hmm. is part of what is affecting the Russian calculus. As are stories like the ones we ran over the weekend, describing in detail what those sanctions would look like. So it's, uh, it's really a fascinating moment to be at the edge of foreign policy, technology policy, and journalism. Well, David, I'm glad you're at that, uh, at that inflection point and where, where all these things are coalescing. I look forward to reading your continued reporting on these issues. And uh, I genuinely appreciate you taking the time to uh, have this chat with me today. Thank you, Klein. We'll do it again sometime.